0: For listening to the Hope Church podcast, we hope that this message inspires you and encourages you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and resources, visit hopeboon.com. Hallelujah. Well, I'm gonna just tell you right up front before I even get into any review, I'm feeling froggy this morning. And I'm coming at you double barrel, okay? Just buckle up. Y'all know that I love you? Do you know that I love you? Yes. You know that I love I mean, I love you so much. I value you. I pray for you. I lay my life down. My wife and, our, and I and our family, we lay our life down for you. Because that's the way that the Bible teaches us how to be pastors. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to challenge you this morning. And the book of James is going to challenge you this morning, okay? So I want you to be prepared for that. Just know that I love you and know that I'm coming after you. Hallelujah. We're going to do just a real quick review of last week, Um, just real quickly talking through some of the finer points of the context of the book of James. We asked the question last week, when was the book of James written? It was written about AD 47, which makes it the oldest and first book of the New Testament that was written. There were no other New Testament books written. There, Paul had not written any letters yet. Matter of fact, he was just starting his mission, his very first missionary journey, right around the same year that James was writing this. James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and this book was written to Jewish Christians in the city or from the city of Jerusalem who had been scattered into surrounding towns and villages due to very intense persecution. That's why James opens the book the way that he does, and he says, James, a bondservant of God and of, the, and of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, he wrote to his countrymen who were experiencing intense persecution, okay? We ask the question, who was James, and why was his, who, what was his identity, and why does Pastor Josh consider him to be an unlikely biblical author? James was not a likely author. It was surprising for James to be the one who wrote the very first book of the New Testament. Why is this? Because Jesus was was James's half-brother. James was the younger half-brother of Jesus. James was Mary and Joseph's second child. Of course, the first one, we know who he was, Jesus, right? The Holy Spirit came and overshadowed Jesus, and he was born unto Mary. And then sometime later... James showed up, and we asked the question, can you imagine growing up in the shadow of Jesus? I mean, can you imagine if Jesus is your older brother? How many middle kids we got in the room? You Anybody else got older siblings? We know how challenging it is. I mean, it's hard enough to just be a younger sibling. Imagine how hard it would be if your older sibling is Jesus, right? Right? How many times would you, how how frustrating would it be if you had to hear over and over and over and over again about the miracle birth of your older brother? It's like, oh, this is Jesus. He's our miracle baby. There's James. Stop playing with your food, (laughs) right? It would be tough to be James. He was an unlikely biblical author. And we found out through, through scripture that he couldn't bring himself to support Jesus' ministry. Him and his brothers and his sisters were actually opposed to what Jesus was doing during his earthly ministry but then something changed. Something radical happened. What was it? He saw the resurrected Lord. When he saw Jesus after the resurrection 1 Corinthians 15 tells us about it when he saw Jesus after the resurrection it changed everything. I'm here to tell you that if the resurrected Christ can save Jesus' brother-in-law or Jesus' brother it can save you too. See how, what is it that makes you a believer? Seeing Jesus. Seeing the resurrected Christ, knowing that he's Lord, amen? We ask the question, what is the theme of James? And the theme of James, and if you're taking notes and you didn't get this last week, I invite you to write this down today. The theme of James is maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. Maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. The real goal is maturity. Maturity. We did a series last month about following God's plan for your life and how to know and how to discern what is God's plan for me. Can I tell you that before you get any more specific on God's plan for you, the first thing that God's got planned for you is that you grow up. Amen. I'm feeling ornery this morning, Brother David. I'm coming. I'm coming for y'all. Grow up. This is the goal that God has for each and every one of us, that we grow That's why we say that at the end of our confession. Today, I'm growing in the things of God. Amen? So, again, the theme is maturity through divine wisdom and authentic faith. We're going to see a pattern here that James is going to be contrasting two realities all the time through this whole book. He's going to be contrasting what is real and authentic with what is fake. He's going to contrast natural wisdom versus real authentic wisdom that comes from God. He's going to be talking about fake faith that just puts on you know, some faith for show and real faith that actually gets things done and can receive miracles. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, how many of you this week took our reading assignment seriously? You don't have to read. Well, good, raising your hands. All right, I like that. I gave you a reading assignment, and I want you to know I didn't just give it to you. This was God's idea. So let's take this reading assignment seriously. Tomorrow morning when you read James chapter 1, My prayer and my desire is that you read it and see it through fresh perspective based on what we talk about this morning. Now I'm going to read you from verse 2 down through verse 19. That's the chunk of James 1 that we're going to cover today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to James chapter 1 or you can follow us along on the screen or on your iPhone or whatever it is that you use to read the Bible with. Beginning in chapter 2, everybody okay? All right. Beginning in, excuse me, in verse 2 of chapter 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be complete and lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. James coming in hot this morning. Let the lowly brother, verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but let the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass its flower fails and its beauty appearance beautiful appearance perishes so let the rich man so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he's been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted i'm tempted by god for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be con- deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation No shadow or turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Boy, that's... Just just touch your neighbor and say, this is heavy. It's strong. It's strong meat. And, and here's, here's what I want you to hear before I jump into my analysis of all of this. I want you to understand that the book of James is written and it's to it, it, believers just like you, and it's written strong so that it'll make you strong. Amen? This is the scriptural equivalent of broccoli. And the more you eat of it, the healthier you get. This is, I mean, this is just like sitting down to a home-cooked meal. It's, it's not gonna be perfectly homogenized chicken like uh, McDonald's chicken nuggets. There there may be a, t- a, a time where you're taking a bite and you go, hmm, what's that in my mouth? Hmm, hold on, let me work this out. Yeah, have y'all ever eaten a home-cooked meal before? <laughs> Did you ever? Do you ever get chicken on the bone and it takes a little work? Yeah. Amen. You get chicken on the bone, it takes a little work. But there's joy in the work. There's reward that comes from the work. James has written to us, and, it, and, it, and it's written hard. It's written strong because it's intended to make us strong. So I want you to see that as we dive into this this morning. Again, the goal here is real maturity. Everything that James points to in his book is aimed at comparing authentic with the authentic with the fake. Real maturity is what God's after. And let me tell you, he knows the difference. He knows the difference between real maturity and talk. Hello. Real maturity is what God is after, and can I can I throw this out there for your consideration this morning before we go any farther? Most people think that they're more mature than they actually are. Most people especially Christians. We're the worst at this. Most people think they're way more mature than they actually are. If you don't believe me, just ask a baby. If you parents, just find a baby. Take one of your little babies or find another baby in the kids ministry after church is over. Actually, don't do that. That, You might get in trouble. Uh, Just talk to a baby one day. Just put, just, you know, afterwards we can, we can all interview my, my daughter, Sophia, make it easy for you. Sophia, are you my beautiful little sweet little baby? No, daddy, I'm not a baby, I'm a big girl. You're four. You're four, you'll be five next month. But what, she she doesn't want to be called a baby. Don't call me a baby, I'm a big girl. Why? Because everybody thinks they're more mature than they actually are. Just ask a seven-year-old in a room full of five-year-olds. You having fun with the kids? Kids? Oh, you mean these children? (laughs) I'm here keeping order. Have you ever noticed the difference between a high school freshman and a high school senior? It's only four years. Might as well be a different lifetime. Ask a high school senior if they have a lot of freshman friends. Better yet. Ask a college freshman if they have a lot of high school senior friends. That's one year difference. But, oh, no, I'm an adult. (laughs) Why am I saying this? It's because all of us, no matter where we're at in our relationship with the Lord, are not quite as far as we think we are. We're not quite as mature as we think we are. And as a matter of fact, one one of the telltale giveaway signs of immaturity is faking maturity. One of the telltale signs that you're a baby is when you're like, I'm not a baby, I'm a big boy. Right? It's a dead giveaway. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. The, be- the backdrop of this whole discussion, especially today, is around maturity. Most people desire the rewards of maturity, but very few are willing to pay the price of maturity. Most people desire the rewards of maturity because there, ver- there are rewards to being grown. Amen? <laughs> there are rewards to being grown. All of us want access to those rewards, but very often we're not willing to pay the price that comes with attaining those rewards. There's a price to grow. My pastor, whom you met several weeks ago, Pastor Jonathan, he says this, and a matter of fact, he mentioned it while he was here. Everybody can be young once, but you can be immature indefinitely. Growth is not mandatory. <laughs> Aging is mandatory. Growth is not. Amen. Maturity comes with a price. I told you I was coming for you this morning. Don't worry, it's going to get a lot worse. <laughs> chapter one, as we dive into our section of chapter one today, should be your playbook as a Christian. I don't know if you, like me, have ever thought, man, this would be so much easier if somebody would just write down some instructions. Anybody besides me ever thought that way? Boy, I just wish somebody would tell me what to do. Well, good news and hooray for you. Your ship has come in, and here it is. James chapter 1 is your playbook on life as a Christian. This is, this is a, the, the Christian's outline for how to live, especially when going through challenging times. This first chapter is all about how to come through the challenges and trials of life victoriously. In this first chapter, James shows us exactly how to go through the most challenging times in our lives and to come out of them better, stronger, and more spiritually mature. Don't you think this is good information for us to know? In fact, he gives us five commandments in this first chapter. We're going to review them all today five commandments that James gives us, straight to the point. I'm going to give all five of of them to you, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at them. Number one, number one thing that James tells you to do, to be mature and to come out of every trial victoriously. Number one, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Number two, ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Number three, glorify God regardless of your circumstances. Glorify God regardless of your circumstances. Number four, don't cave into the pressure. Don't cave into the pressure. And number five, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I'll give them to you one more time because I know you're, I see you guys writing notes. Number one command when you're going through a tough time is count it all joy. The number two command when you're going through a tough time, ask God for his wisdom. Number three, glorify God, regardless of your circumstance. Number four, don't cave into the pressure. Somebody say that. Say, don't cave in. Yeah. And number five, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I mean, it's kind of like three things, but he's bunched all into one sentence, so I'm just calling it one thing. Now, I want to look through those five things this morning. Before I do that, I want, to, I want to debunk two misunderstandings. Two misunderstandings that I want to debunk about challenging times, trials, tribulations, tests, whatever words you want to use. Triple T. Tests, trials, tribulations, temptations. Two myths or two misunderstandings, I should call, call them, that we want to debunk Right from the get-go. Number one misunderstanding is that trials and tests come from God. This idea is a miscalculation in people's mind that God is putting tribulation in their lives in order to increase their faith. And Maybe you've thought this before. If you have, it's okay. James is going to straighten us all out together this morning. Maybe you've thought that God's putting tribulation in your life for the sheer fact or for the sheer goal of increasing your faith. But the scripture is clear from cover to cover that the Lord is a help to those who are in need. The Bible says that the Lord fights our battles. Yeah. Scripture says he's a strong tower into whom we run and we are safe, yeah. right? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. We find out that it's God who actually gives us wisdom on how to come through trials. He's not the one putting the trial on you to try to teach you something. Amen. That's not how God works. God doesn't teach you with trials. Amen. You know how He teaches you? With His word, with His voice. Discipline and correction absolutely come from God. He's here to teach you. He's here to grow you up. He's just not going to send the devil to do it for him. Yeah. God's never going to put something in your life and on you that He sent Jesus to the cross to eliminate. Yeah. So Jesus is not going to try to give you faith by giving you cancer. It's not going to happen. Right. That's not how it works. It's like, oh well, Josh and Brianne, they need to, they need a dose of faith. Let's put them through a nasty divorce and then they'll really know God. It's not how it works. Trials come from the enemy. Amen. Trials come from the evil one. God's not the one testing you this morning. So that's the first thing we want to debunk. The second one is kind of part of that, which is this idea that that the reason that the trial is there is to increase your faith. It's real easy to read verse 2 and come away with the idea that the trial is what gives me more faith. Let me read verse 2 to you again. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. Sometimes we read that and we come away with this idea that the test produces faith. It doesn't. The test produces patience. If if the idea that tests and trials are in our life to make us, to, to give us faith, if that was true, everybody on the planet would have loads of faith. Because everybody on the planet's experienced plenty of trials. Anybody ever have had a bad day? Right? Anybody ever walked through a tough season, a tough situation? All of us. The scripture's very clear. The scripture says that it rains on the just and on the unjust. You're not immune from bad things happening to you. Nobody is. But those bad things, when they come, they're not there to try to produce faith in you. They're there to determine whether there's any faith there or not. Trials don't give you faith. They just expose whether you have any or not. Amen. Tell them I'll be there. Someone once asked Dr. Oral Roberts this question. What was the traumatic experience that God allowed you to go through to give you such awesome faith? What was the traumatic experience God allowed you to go through to give you such awesome faith? Dr. Roberts looked at the man and said, I got born again. I got born again. That was the traumatic experience that God put in my life to give me such powerful faith. If trials were the mechanism that God used to give us great faith, then we would all have huge faith. And furthermore, if it was the pitfalls of life that give us great faith, then why would God give us a Bible filled with his wisdom on how to avoid life's nastiest pitfalls? If the pitfall was designed to increase my faith, then why would why would God give me 6 different verses to say here's how you avoid that situation? No, God wants you to grow up. <laughs> this is going to be my favorite two words for this entire series, grow up. Just grow up. Hallelujah. Trials come from the enemy in order to get us to quit. I want you to understand the reason that they're there. The trial's not to try to produce something in you. Now, if you want to take the trial and make it work for you, you can do that. You can rise up in faith and say, you know what? This trial's coming against me to try to get me to quit, but I'm going to determine that it's only going to make me stronger and I'm going to keep walking with Jesus. That's totally up to you. That's totally up to you and your faith. You can absolutely take everything the enemy throws at you and turn it around and make it his worst nightmare and say, yeah, bring it on, devil. Come on. If you you go through the trial the right way, you'll come out stronger and you'll come out bolder. But the purpose of the trial is coming from the enemy in order to get us to quit, in order to pacify us and make us ineffective in the kingdom of God. Remember what I said at the beginning, the trials that James is talking about here, specifically, these trials specifically are created by Satan in an effort to get us to redefine our commitment to Christ. These have to do, these, the things he's describing here have to do with the persecution that these Christians were under. Intense persecution from so many different angles. And James has given them secrets on how to overcome that persecution and do it victoriously. And you need to understand that the reason the devil throws trials at you is, number one, to get you to quit. And number two, if he can get you to quit, after you've quit, number two, he wants you to just actually redefine your commitment to Christ altogether. When you're making progress in the things of God, you're moving forward, you're growing, you're developing, the only thing the devil has against you is to try to get you to either slow down or quit. He's already lost control of you. When you gave your life to Jesus, you I mean, you, you're off limits to him now. When you give your life to Christ, you're no longer his possession. You belong to Jesus now. Your heart is clean. You're pure before God. You're in the family of God. So the only thing he can do is get you to slow down, And if he can get you to slow down long enough, he'll get you to quit. And then if he can get you to quit and stay quit, he'll get you to start to redefine your commitment to Christ, to renege on your agreement that you made with Jesus that I'm going to love you and serve you, here, you're going to be my Lord. That's the goal. So how do we come through these challenges that James is talking to us about victoriously? How do you win in life when all the chips are stacked against you? You ever have a bad day where you felt the chips were just stacked against you? Just like, I don't know, how am I going to get out of this day? Yeah, we all have, right? As I said earlier, he gives us five clear-cut points. Five clear-cut instructions. The first one is in verse 2. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Now, this word count... When I first read it in the Greek, actually surprised me. But the more that I dug into it, the more I understood why it's written this way. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. The word count in Greek here means to lead. Isn't that interesting? I didn't see that coming, did you? Count it all joy to lead? It means to lead, to rule, or to command, to have authority over. That's what this word means in the Greek to have authority and to count, or excuse me, to command and to lead and to rule. A good way, perhaps a better way, to describe this verse would be to say, command your own joy when you get into a challenging situation. Hey, now it's starting to make sense. Now it's starting to go, okay, wow, that's amazing. You you have the responsibility in your life to command your own emotions. Oh, I need some millennials to hear this. I need some Gen Zers, some TikTok influencers to hear what I'm about to say. You have a responsibility from God to command your own emotions. You are called to go into every situation of life and command joy in your own life. Oh, but Pastor Josh, you don't know what she did to me. You don't know what he did to me. Uh, you don't know the situation. I'm so sorry, but it was five years ago. Get over it and learn to command joy in your life. I told you I'm coming for you this morning. You may be surrounded by depression. You may be surrounded by anxiety. What does Psalm 23 says? Say, the <laughs> Spoke Ash County there for a second. What is? What does Psalm 23 say? It says, "He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil, My cup runs over. Goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life, and I dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You might be in the middle of hell surrounding you. You still have a responsibility to command your own joy. You still have a responsibility to grow up and walk by faith and not by sight. What does the scripture say? The just live by faith. How do we do it? We walk by faith and not by sight. We got a bunch of people in this world walking by sight. Oh my God, don't let me go down this road, but I'm going to anyway. Can I ask you this question? And it's a very honest question, it's a real question. We gotta learn to command our own joy. How much life are you gonna have to live before you realize that you are the only one in charge of your emotions? How much life are you gonna have to live? 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 50, 50, 50, 55, 60? How many years is it gonna take? Before you just realize nobody is responsible for your emotions except for you. Amen. Oh Pastor, I just you know. I was following that Johnny Depp trial and just when when they, when when she said that, I just got triggered. Grow up! Grow up! Grow up. Young people young people. This is especially pertinent for young people. I need you to hear this. I need you to hear your pastor this morning. I need you to hear your dad this morning. You cannot let the world around you tell you how you feel. You can't do it. You can't do it. Because if you do, and you do it long enough, you're just going to become a spiritual, spineless blob of an amoeba that can't stand under anything. The Bible says, love bears up under all things. Love, the love of God will create in you a sturdy system of life that will cause you to be able to bear the weight of all kinds of things. How are we going to win the world for Jesus if we can't command our own joy, <laughs> told you I was coming for you this morning, but I love you. You know that, right? I mean, we got people, I'm going a, I'm to a soapbox this for another second and then I'm going to move on. We got people who can't even command joy when they see other people's trials. We got people whose mission in life it is to be offended on someone's behalf. Now listen, I'm all about empathy and sympathy and making sure that you're, you know, that you're being a bridge builder and a person of peace. I'm all about that. But you gotta be able to command your own joy when your tough day comes. But some of us can't even command joy when we see something bad that happens to somebody else on Instagram. Grow up. It's time. It's time to grow up. Immaturity is what allows us to let the world around us tell us how we feel. And if we do that long enough, then the world telling us how we feel is going to slowly morph into the world telling us how we live. And we don't want to go there. So number one, count it all joy. You still with me? You still love me? I haven't hurt you too bad, have I? Number two, Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. How do I come through a trial? How do I? What's my playbook for victorious living in every situation? Number two, ask God for wisdom. If you're going to come out of the temptation and the trial alive, you're going to need to get God's wisdom on it. <laughs> in other words, you're going to need to see the situation you're in from a better vantage point. You're going to need to see things in your life from God's perspective. How many of you have heard me talk about this experience I had one of the many times I flew into into, uh, New York City? I used to go to New York City a lot, back before COVID. And uh, I was flying into LaGuardia, and if you've ever flown into LaGuardia, it's in the northern part of Queens, and it's just on the East River. And When you come in over the Hudson and you come in over the bay towards LaGuardia, you fly right over the Statue of Liberty and you fly right past southern Manhattan. It's one of the coolest views from a plane. And I remember distinctly feeling so different because I'm from New York. I've been to New York so many times and have really, I love that city. It's just a wonderful place. I've been to New York when it's jammed like wall-to-wall traffic and you can't move and it's... And it's crazy, and you feel like a little tiny ant, uh, you know, in this big, huge thing. And you're surrounded by all these buildings. If you've ever been down Fifth Avenue, you know what it's like to be surrounded by just huge, tall skyscrapers. You can feel dwarfed and tiny and, and invisible in southern Manhattan. But I remember flying into LaGuardia that day and looking at the streets that I've been on, where I remember being in taxi cabs and thinking, gosh, this place is crazy. But it didn't feel so crazy to me when I was flying above it all, looking at it all from a different perspective. You see, when you get into the trials of life and the situations where you feel pressed, where you feel like you're in the taxi cab, when you feel like you know you're 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 just pressed on every side. Paul talks about it, and to the Corinthians he says, "We're we're pressed on every side, but we don't despair. Why? Because." Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world, and I've come to understand that if I learn to get in the airplane and see things from God's perspective, it'll give me a completely different view of the situation. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Number two is that we ask God for wisdom, and here's what I want you to take away from this. God's wisdom comes from God's perspective. God's wisdom comes from His perspective. When you, can begin to, when you can begin to see through God's eyes, you start to look at your life through the perspective of the One who sees the end from the beginning. You start to look at your life through the perspective of the One who was and is and is to come. You begin to look at your life through the perspective of the God who created everything that you can see and everything that you can't see. God's wisdom comes from God's perspective number three how do we how do we come through challenging times victoriously James number one count it all joy number two ask God for wisdom and number three glorify God regardless of your circumstance I forgot to tack this on to number two once you get God's wisdom and his perspective on it don't change your mind I'm not going to get into it for the sake of time, but what he talks about there, about being double-minded, and that double-mindedness creating an instability in all your ways is like one day you see from God's perspective, the next day you get, you know, get tied back up in the news cycle, and then the next day you, you break free from that, and you go, oh, praise God, I'm going to walk with God, and then now I'm starting to see things from God's perspective again, and oh, you know, Sister Sally and her opinions came and just, just pulled me back in. Y'all ever see The Godfather 3? Michael says, just when I thought I was out. That's how emotions are sometimes. Just when you thought you are out, they pull you back in. When you get God's wisdom and you get his perspective, don't change your mind. Number three, glorify God regardless of your circumstance. This is, this is from verses 9 down through verse 11 where he's talking about the poor man and the rich man. Why is James talking to us about the difference between the rich and the poor person? Has he got something against poor people? No. Does he got something against rich people? No. Why is James using this as an example? Because he's trying to teach us this idea of glorifying God no matter what the circumstance is. Because wealth or lack thereof is not a predetermined indicator of how you're going to respond when things get tough. Why does he bring why does he all of a sudden take this left hand turn into, into contrasting rich and poor people? It's not because he has anything against or for either of them. It's just simply to help us to understand that, hey, if you're rich and you're on your way down, glorify God. If you're poor and you're on your way up, glorify God. Whatever circumstance you're in, you need to be given God glory. Hallelujah. No matter what, no matter where you find yourself in life, man, if things are really going good, seems easy to praise God. And, it's, and, and when things are really, really going bad, it seems easy to pray, doesn't it? Anybody ever get in a real bad jam and you're like, I need to pray. It seems like on the opposite sides of these spectrums, it's easy to get with God. It's when you're in the middle that's tough, right? It's when like nothing's really going bad and things are going pretty good. We got everything under control. That's when we tend to forget God. Come on, I'm talking to you this morning. Just look straight ahead and you'll know I'm not talking directly to you. James is teaching us here that it's our responsibility to be glorifying in our life to God, whether rich or poor or somewhere in between. When you're on your way up and when on your way down, give God praise. Amen. Glorify him, guys. Do it when it's hard. Do it when it's not easy. It's easy to praise, praise God at church on Sunday. Especially if you live with a band like ours. It's easy, man, when the music is going. James, You know, I mean, it's just easy when the music is going. And we're singing, and we're raising our hands, and we're saying, praise God. It's tough on Tuesday morning when you found bad news. Amen. All right, I won't camp on that anymore. Glorify God regardless of your circumstance. Number four, don't cave in to the pressure. Don't cave in to the pressure. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say he is, when he is tempted that I'm tempted by God. Now, why, why is this word temptation so important here? Uh, in my study of this, I discovered that the word trial in the early part of the chapter and the word temptation here in the later part of the chapter are exactly the same Greek word. Translated, conjugated the exact same way. So literally the word trial at the beginning and the word temptation in verse 13 is the identical Greek word. Same word. So why why do the translators use it as the word temptation here? I believe that number one, this validates the point we made at the beginning. that, That trials and temptations, tests, tribulations, whatever you want to call them, don't come from God. James makes it real clear here. If you get tempted by God, if you go into a trial, if you, excuse me, if you get tempted, if you go into a trial, you go into to a, a tribulation situation, don't step back and be like, God's doing this to me. God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does he tempt. So why is this word temptation used, even though it's the same word as trial, eight verses ago? The language that James uses here is very important. It's the same concept as earlier, it's just that here, James is highlighting a different aspect of a trial, which is this idea that every trial comes with a temptation. Every time you get into a pressing situation, there's always a temptation that comes with it. What is it? The temptation to quit. The temptation to back off your faith. The temptation to throw away what you've already learned to be true. We just got God's wisdom a few verses ago. We just got God's perspective a few verses ago. We understand what's really going on in the situation. But if the situation persists longer than you do, you'll give up on the perspective that you got from God. And you'll go, man, I guess Jesus doesn't love me after all. Thought he did. Guess he doesn't. That's why James says, you know what you need? Perseverance. Blessed is the man who perseveres when the temptation comes. He's going to get a crown of life. She's going to get a crown of life. God's got reward in store for you when you persevere, when you make a decision, when you put your feet down and draw a line in the sand and say, come hell or high water, I'm going with Jesus. I don't care what society says to me. I don't care about the reorganizing and rearranging of morals in my society. I believe what Jesus says. I believe what the Bible says. I'm going to stick with what my God said is true, and I don't care what anybody else thinks about it. Woo. Blessed is the man who endures this temptation. You see, the thing that's going to help to grow you up, after all, this is what this book's all about, is growing up. The thing that's going to help you to grow up is by persevering when the enemy comes to press on you. When you you get between a rock and a hard place, as they say, and the easy thing is just to pull back and give up and say, well, whatever, it's not worth it. You know, if you look at other countries in the world, you look at other places in the world, There is a very real pressure for Christians to deny their faith. I remember when I was in youth group, and maybe Sean might remember this. I don't know why I keep hearkening back to our younger days today, but you and I may remember. You may remember this. We had a missionary come to speak to us in our youth group, and we actually couldn't use his real name and... We couldn't talk about anything that he did to our that he did with our friends. In fact, they they told us, "Hey, when you go to school tomorrow, don't say anything about what you're what you're hearing tonight." Because he was a pastor that served the underground church in Saudi Arabia, and he came to talk to us and to minister to us. Do you remember this? No, you don't remember it. You must have been on. You must have been gone that week. Uh, but but we had this guy, and he came, and he was from the underground church in Saudi Arabia, and and he talked to us about. Listen. Where, where I live and where I work and where I pastor, if they know that I'm a Christian, they'll cut my head off. That's a real thing. I mean, I know that, you know, Portland is kind of sketchy right now, but it's, at least it's not Saudi Arabia. Right? Hmm. But but we, let me tell you something. This is, I want to close with this. We're, we're in a, we're in a, a a shifting scene in the world and particularly in our country and I know you see it and you feel it and you see it all around you it's becoming increasingly more hostile to hold to the world view that you and I possess as Christians and and, and we're seeing a day where it's costing us more now to declare the lordship of Jesus Christ in our communities in our families in our churches in our homes and, and, and why I want to say this is because James is beckoning us here that when we get in situations where our faith comes under fire and where we enter into a trial uh, that is exposing and trying to get us to back off on our, com- our commitment to the lordship of Jesus, when we get in that situation, he's saying, don't fold under the pressure. Don't quit. Notice the language in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Watch this, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Notice this language, and and keep in mind that biblical language is never wasted. James says that if we don't fold under the pressure, we'll get a crown of life which is reserved for those who love God. One of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that you can gauge your love for God is in your ability to persevere. One of the ways... That you and I demonstrate that we love the Lord is that we don't fold when the going gets tough. It's It's that we don't back down when it feels easier to just back down. It's that we don't retreat and surrender when temptation comes knocking on our door. It's that we stand up with boldness and courage and say, you know what? Jesus is Lord. I'm not going to reconsider my commitment to him. I'm not going to back off. I'm not going to go like the, the rest of them go. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now the fifth, the fifth key that James gives us is in verse 19. It says, be slow to hear, or slow to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What does that mean? We'll talk about it next week. Come on, y'all, stand up to your feet. I hope and I pray that this first half of this first chapter absolutely challenges you and stirs you to your core. James is going to take us over the next nine more Sundays He's going to take us through an exercise in in unpacking and uncovering what's really in our hearts. The thing that I love about this book is it's so reflective. We're we're actually going to talk about this next week when we read in verse 23 where James says, those who look into the perfect law of liberty and observe themselves like natural people looking in the mirror. We're going to find out what he's doing in this book is going to cause us to have a a front row seat to what's actually going on in our heart. That's why I want you to take the reading assignment seriously. That's why I want you to get up tomorrow morning and read James chapter 1. And then Tuesday, read James chapter 2. Because as we do that, God's word's going to work on the inside of our hearts. And if there's something that's not right there, he's gonna, his Word's going to show it to us. Amen? Y'all excited about this? I didn't come in too hot for you, did I? No, well, I got some yeses, some noes, some like, I don't know, I'm just trying to go to lunch. Like, okay, we're, let's just bow our heads. <laughs> oh, Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, for your loving kindness, for your tender mercies. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that you love me enough to challenge me. I thank you that you care about me enough to not leave me in deception. Hallelujah. Somebody needs to hear this. Maybe somebody individually or maybe all of us together. The Spirit of God loves you so much that he's unwilling to leave you in the condition he finds you in. If you go back to the Book of Genesis, chapter three, we see the story of Adam and Eve having transgressed in their sins, and God issues a judgment and what appears to be a punishment when He says, "We have to. We have to." And this is my paraphrase. We have to take them out of the garden. Lest they continue to eat from the tree of life and live forever. It's a perplexing verse, but it perfectly demonstrates what I'm, what I'm saying to you now. That Jesus loves you so much that he won't let you stay ignorant. He won't let you stay in sin. He won't let you stay in the condition that he finds you in. Like he said over Adam and Eve, you can't eat from the tree of life and continue to live forever. Why? Why? Because their heart condition had changed. They had, they had taken sin into themselves. Now they were polluted. And God said, we can't let them be polluted forever. And it was from that moment that the, the plan of redemption began to kick in. And Jesus, thousands of years later, shows up on the scene to go pay the price on Calvary's cross and undo everything that Adam did. And now we can partake of the tree of life. We get to live forever. We get to enjoy what Adam should have enjoyed. Why? Because God was not not satisfied with leaving us the way he found us. So when he he gives us strong truth like what he's given us from the book of James, there's a reason, there's a purpose, there's a plan involved, and that is that you and I would not stay weak forever, that we wouldn't stay babies forever, that we wouldn't stay immature forever, but that he would show us the truth of his word, and that truth would cause us to grow in the things of God. So though it's hard and though some of these things have been hard and challenging to hear and I know you're going to go away and you've got some things that you might wrestle with this week. Wrestle. Can I give you permission to wrestle with the word this week? Wrestle with the word. Let the word perfect you on the inside. Because it's what's making you strong and fortified internally so that come hell or high water you don't ever back off of your commitment to Jesus so that when the day of compromise comes, you don't have to compromise because you know who you are. Oh, glory to God. Isn't it so good to know who you are? Let's stretch up our hands towards heaven and close in prayer. Father, we love you so much. Thanks again for listening to the Hope Church Podcast. Our church exists to see people from all walks of life, know Jesus, connect and grow, discover their purpose and make a difference in this world. If you would like to connect with us further or if you need prayer or assistance, please visit us at hopeboon.com where Jesus loves you, we love you and your life counts.